Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Good evening and welcome to Radio Gag. My name is Paul Rowley and I'm your host for this evening's show. In the weeks since we last broadcast, I think most of us are still reeling in shock after the invasion of the Capitol building. Tonight on the show, we're bringing you a special roundtable discussion from your Radio Gag team. Our hosts will be discussing the events of the week from an activist perspective, many of us sharing our own personal stories of performing civil disobedience and getting arrested in DC, and the gross disparity in the way that we've been treated as compared to what we saw happen this week. And we'll be discussing the dangers that we face now that this significant line has been crossed. Armed bogus patriots have stormed the Capitol building, singing the national anthem, waving Trump flags, while crushing people to death, and even killing a police officer with a fire extinguisher. First up this evening, we have the gun violence prevention news from Trisha Cook. Newly elected Congresswoman Lauren Boebert has taken to Twitter with a new video which shows her walking the streets of DC with her firearm on her hip. Even though I now live in one of the most liberal cities in America, I refuse to give up my rights, especially my second amendment rights, she says. I will carry my firearm in DC and in Congress. Bober owns a gun-themed restaurant in Rifle, Colorado, and was elected this November in Colorado's 3rd District, beating out both incumbent Scott Tipton in her primary and Diane Mitch Bush in the general election. She has spent the past month pledging to go to work in the Capitol with her gun. In the ad, she walks a residential street in D.C. talking about the city's skyrocketing crime rates, one reason she needs to carry her Glock. I walk to my office every morning by myself, she says. So as a five-foot-tall, 100-pound woman, I choose to protect myself legally because I am my best security. As a member of Congress, Bobert is permitted to have her weapon at work, but not on the streets of D.C. You need a concealed carry permit to legally walk around the city with a gun. And firearms brought in from other states need to be registered with the city. D.C. Police Chief Robert Conti said he plans to make sure Bobert knows the laws. There are no exceptions in the District of Columbia, Conti said. We plan to reach out to the Congresswoman's office to make sure she is aware of what the laws of the District of Columbia are. She will be subjected to the same penalties as anyone else. The Metropolitan Police Department in D.C. does not release the names of permit holders, so it's unclear if Bobert has received a concealed carry permit in Washington. The laws governing firearms on Capitol Hill date back to October 1967, months after race riots tore through scores of U.S. cities. President Lyndon B. Johnson signed a federal law explicitly banning weapons on the Capitol grounds for the first time, while also empowering the Capitol Police Board to make exceptions. The board established those exceptions in a regulation published days after the laws went into effect, setting that nothing shall prohibit any member of Congress from maintaining firearms within the confines of his office or any member of Congress or any employee or agent of any member of Congress from transporting within the Capitol grounds, firearms unloaded and securely wrapped. Our next story comes from the Chicago Tribune. This past Saturday, a gunman shot seven people, killing three and wounding four in a series of attacks across various neighborhoods in Chicago. The man, identified by Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown as 32-year-old Jason Nightingale, made his way from Chicago's south side to Evanston, where he was shot dead by Evanston police. 
A collection of videos posted to his personal Facebook page from Friday night have been unearthed. The videos depict a man mumbling incoherently to the camera. At one point, he raves, I'm going to blow up the whole community. The Chicago shooting rampage began at 1.50 p.m. in the East Hyde Park neighborhood on the south side, when police believed Nightingale entered a garage and shot a man in the head as he sat in a vehicle. The man who died was a 30-year-old University of Chicago student. In a post on social media, the university later confirmed his name was Yaron Fawn and that he was a doctoral student in business and economics. Shortly after, Nightingale entered an apartment building and murdered the door woman, aged 46. He then proceeded to wound a 77-year-old woman, leaving her in critical condition. It was here that he carjacked a man's red Toyota, which he subsequently drove to, con- to a convenience store in the Brainerd neighborhood and attempted an armed robbery. In this process, he shot an 81-year-old woman in the back and neck. She has been in critical condition since. After exiting the store, Nightingale shot and killed a 20-year-old man. An hour later, in the Washington Heights neighborhood, Nightingale shot a 15-year-old girl while she was driven with her mother. Police have not been able to establish a motive. Chicago Police Superintendent David Brown described their pursuit of the capricious gunman. We are responding to the scene as these crimes are happening, getting information, and again, he's going to the next while we are trying to keep up with what's happened previously, Brown told reporters. By the time we put it all together, he's here in Evanston. Nightingale's final victim was a woman dining at an IHOP in the outskirts of Evanston. He reportedly took her hostage and shot her in the neck. She is currently in critical condition. Nightingale fled the IHOP to a Dollar General parking lot. He proceeded to exchange gunfire with the Evanston police, who shot and killed him. Thanks so much, Tricia, for the news. I also wanted to add that significantly yesterday in Michigan, a state panel has now banned the open carry of guns in the state capital. And this is significant and had been hoped for since April when, as you remember, armed protesters opposing Governor Gretchen Whitmer's COVID restrictions stormed the Capitol building. Some of these armed protesters were also actually involved in a conspiracy to kidnap the Michigan governor. One of the accused leaders talked of recruiting hundreds of men to storm the building, take hostages and, quote, execute tyrants. A secondary plan involved in locking the exits, setting the building on fire. This is according to the court records. A line has been crossed and we are now in the situation where Second Amendment gun nuts and right-wing militias are no longer standing around merely brandishing their weapons, but they are using them. And as the events were unfolding, one truth was yet again made painfully clear. There was a vast disparity between how these Trump-supporting rioters were treated by law enforcement to that of BIPOC protesters at Black Lives Matter rallies. Unbelievably, the mob broke into the House of Representatives' chambers and one rioter was shot and later died from her injuries. Her death at the hands of the law enforcement demonstrates how much further these violent Trump supporters were able to take their grievances, literally to within feet of members of Congress. On October the 3rd, 2013, Miriam Carey was also shot and killed by law enforcement in Washington, D.C. But the circumstances around her death are in stark contrast with that of last week. According to her family, Miriam had been hospitalised for postpartum depression on the day of the incident, She was supposed to be taking her daughter to a doctor's appointment in Connecticut. 
Instead, Miriam would ultimately die at the hands of authorities in DC after allegedly striking a White House security barrier, making a U-turn in a restricted White House checkpoint and leading authorities on a car chase to the US Capitol grounds. The police response involved officers from both local and federal agencies and ended with two officers firing nine shots each into the vehicle. Miriam would later die as a result of her injuries at MedStar Washington Hospital Center. Federal officials said that she may have suffered from schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. She was also known by her loved ones to have struggled with mental illness, referring to herself as the prophet of Stamford and insisting that then-President Obama had her house under electronic surveillance. Over the years, Miriam's family has questioned police actions in this chase and officially announced a wrongful death claim against the US Capitol Police and the Secret Service. While both tragic, Miriam's death shines a bright light on the disparity of how black people are treated at the hands of law enforcement. In memoriam of Miriam Carey, 34, Stamford, Connecticut. You are listening to Radio Gag right here on listener-sponsored WBAI. So this week on Radio Gag, uh, we've come together as a team, actually, to just try and process what is happening in this country. Um, we have many of our regular hosts and contributors here, Trisha Cook, Josh Chaden, Ty Kersley, Sarah Jermaine Lilly, we're all here in the studio together and we're just trying to piece together from a group of people who are working actively to try and end gun violence in this country and who are understanding clearly the connections between what we've seen happen this week with the invasion of the Capitol, with the gun violence epidemic, with what the NRA are promoting, what the President of the United States has been promoting. To us, it's all connected. I mean, Sarah, Ty, I know you two have been reporting a lot on this, you know, the uptick in arms sales, all of that. Do you want to just kick us off with where, we, where we're coming from and why this is not a surprise? Well, let me jump in that I really was surprised initially, and we did a show in July with, around the time that the armed militias were showing up at the state capitals in Michigan, and Jay Walker explained to us uh, some of the history of these groups and what exactly Boogaloo is, and that these groups have always had in mind that they would be inciting race war. And at that time, I learned about the three percenters, and of course, you will hear and you will see them now. Also, the denialism plays into it. The Second Amendment, gun rights, very much plays into this because it is, what is this gun ultimately protecting me for, from, right? What is this gun ultimately protecting me from? Maybe, Ty, you can take that thread. I think you can give people a reason and you can give people an excuse. And I don't believe in excuses. There's only reasons. And the reason is these people don't mind if they end up killing someone else one day. Just like when you do become a cop, just when you do join the military, when you are in something like that and you're trained with a weapon, you know that you may have to take someone's life. Having said that, there is a fervor and a feeling when all of those people get together about how macho and great they feel and how militant they are. And I've seen it grow throughout my whole life. Uh, you can not take an umbrella into that, you know, into the capital of Kentucky, but you can have a gun and then just walk around the metal detector. 
not to even mention our whole fight initially was against you know the NRA and all of the politicians and all of the companies that were supporting the gun industry. But it, the enemy is that thought, that thought of people wanting to be in some sort of core or group, uh, just like there's a gang culture. We have a white wannabe uh, military culture and they love each other and they get off on it. And they hate us. <laughs> they hate people who are standing up for, you know, stricter gun control laws. They hate gay people, LGBTQ people. A lot of them hate women. They certainly hate people of color. Just before we came on air there, Josh, you were sharing with us about how as outspoken activists, now we are dealing with anxiety on a whole new level and as, as queer activists, even more so. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we've crossed the Rubicon into not only um, are these white supremacists and quote unquote militia groups emboldened by the current president of the United States, but they've seen firsthand that they can get away with entering into our public spaces, desecrating them, committing acts of violence, getting, you know, law enforcement have been murdered, you know, and they've gotten away with it. Largely, they've gotten away with it. My point being is that we've always had a target on our backs, you know, figuratively. We have our, we've given our name to this cause. We've attended events, we've attended rallies, we've put together direct actions in the public space. We have very, we're very vocal in our support for demilitarizing the police, for getting guns off the street, for protecting kids that are in school, for protecting parishioners by reducing gun violence, by getting rid of guns, essentially. We're gays against guns, for goodness sake. <laughs> you know, that's our name. And we've already, we've always had that fig figurative target on our back and now it's literal. Now we literally have targets on our backs. There's planned insurrections for January 17th and January 19th and 20th. There are counter protests that have been long planned on the 17th of January by many members of the GVP movement. Many of our friends, you know, many of our allies and since Wednesday, I've been terrified for their safety in a way that I've never been before, ever. I'm terrified. And in my gut, I know something's going to happen. I think we all do. I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we, did, if we thought that we were going to get away with another counter protest where somebody wasn't going to get hurt or killed. So, you know, I just hope to whatever higher power everybody out there believes in and pray that we can keep each other safe and be smart about how we are putting ourselves out there and still get our message out there and still do the right thing and still be on the right side of history and survive, literally. Literally survive. And teach people how to see these signs uh, in people they know, see these signs uh, in, in culture around them, because it hasn't happened everywhere, but every town is susceptible to this kind of activity. But now that we know it's affecting us directly to the point where uh, they're so angry, just, just overthrow the whole government and start over. Like that whole uh, delusion 
needs an enemy and they're at war with the word liberal, but it means everyone else. It means everybody. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty much anybody that's not them. And you can really see it in the, all it took for them to want to bring that noose to the Capitol and hang Mike Pence was that he disagreed with Trump once. That's all it took. And you know, this is denial and this is enabling, and this is how, you know, this is how abuse is perpetuated. I will never forget, and I hope America never forgets, Ted Cruz saying, you know, well, Trump did it this time, and maybe if he does it again, then it's time to think about removing him. You know, I'm so glad you brought up Ted Cruz, because when he took to the floor of the Senate to um, encourage his fellow senators to vote to reject the Arizona certification, he said something that sent a chill down my spine when I rewatched the footage. He was chastising both sides of the aisle throughout his speech, playing the middle and saying, by saying that I don't think that anyone should have any certitude in what's going to happen. None of you can be certain of what the outcome of this is going to be, right? Within an hour, there were armed, violent insurrectionists standing where he was standing. It's terrifying. And, and their apologists are going to be spinning, um, uh, you know, the kind of statement that's always been made for Trump. You know, oh, he didn't really mean it. You know, he was making a joke. He was being ironic. Yeah, an ironic noose. You know, you gotta, you have to put that in context. This is, this is 2021, but we just went through a year where we took very seriously these threats. But now that they've all had to, you know, go through an active shooter situation, you would imagine that they would have the ability to at least understand what their children have been going through for the last 20 plus years in our schools, but they won't. Well, not while they keep getting money from the gun industry and the NRA, they're not going to. They lived through it and they're, it's just, <laughs> the cognitive dissonance is just astounding. You know, they can literally have their lives at risk today. And then by tomorrow, they're already, you know, giving statements. A total 180. A total 180. Or denying that it even happened, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, because one of the things we do with Gays Against Guns is we are a direct action group. So for our listeners, to, just to explain that, you know, we engage in civil disobedience, which is a time-honored form of public protest, where you kind of put your body on the line in order to make a point. But we do it peacefully and, you know, people in ACT UP did it in order to get drugs. You know, just last year we were at the Supreme Court and hundreds of people were arrested in a matter of minutes, mind you, for sitting down in the street. So, Tricia, I know that you've been involved a lot in the civil disobedience, especially over the last year or so. Maybe you can share some of your personal insights with us, having been through the experience of being arrested and how you've been treated, how you've seen other people being treated. We go in with the intention of not being violent. It's nonviolent civil disobedience. Last January, 
around the impeachment, I was arrested once for sitting in the rotunda. We went up into the rotunda, we joined the tour. We, you know, there were 10 of us who had planned it. We knew what we were going to chant. We had a message. I mean, part of what's, you know, <laughs> so ridiculous about the people who stormed the Capitol was they didn't even have a message really that they were bringing, you know, they, they had nothing that they wanted to give. They got into the Capitol and all of a sudden they were like, whoa, we're inside. What are we going to do now? We're just going to wreck the place. I mean, we went in with the intention of raising our voices as loud as we could. So senators in the chamber, you know, could hear us. We sat on the rotunda floor and, you know, within a few minutes, we had locked arms and the whole rotunda was shut down and the Capitol Police were there and we were all arrested and taken down and put into paddy, wag paddy wagons. And the same thing, I did an action throwing confetti into the Russell Rotunda from the floor above. And that was really violent, actually, the way they arrested us for that. And they came in screaming, we've never seen anything like this before. And then, you know, they chained us to the wall when they took us into jail. And it was pretty rough. I mean, it was a brutal, I mean, not as brutal as, you know, all of the things that we've seen around black men and cops and police confrontations but I mean it was they were rough you know that's just the disparity between the nonviolent civil disobedience but the violence that comes from the cops or that I've experienced um in January or a woman who was in the heart building and just had a piece of tape on her mouth that said arrest Trump was thrown to the ground and arrested for walking in a circle in the heart building um, and then these people come into the Capitol and not only do, you know, they break windows, but they rub excrement on the wall. Nothing is done to them. You know, the way that we as nonviolent protesters are treated compared to the way that that mob was treated is just mind blowing. I mean, I was just worried for them on the steps. Like before anyone broke anything, oh, that's just too many people. And if one gun goes off, oh yeah, I thought, oh, they're going to be gassed. There's going to be a stampede. I was like empathizing for what happens to you when you try to take a government building over is like, this is going to go so wrong. And, and unfortunately it was planned to be a thousand times worse. This is a history test of whether or not we have a civil war. And why we need to get the guns out of the hands of these people. And indeed, just like we've started to see now slowly, bit by bit, we've started to see red flag laws coming in where people can call the cops and say, this man is a domestic abuser, he shouldn't have a gun. Or this person was acting really weirdly for the last year in school and like posting online about shooting people, they shouldn't have a gun. In the same way, I'm sorry, if you are a member of a radicalized domestic violence, a domestic terrorist group, that should show up on your record and you should be not allowed by weapons. And if you already have them, they should be taken away from you. Okay, folks, so that is all we have time for on this week's show. We want to thank you so much for tuning in. I don't know what I can say. Just stay safe, folks. If you're out in the streets protesting, whatever you're doing, just take care of each other. Let's take care of each other. Take care of ourselves. Be safe. We'll be back next Tuesday, 6.30pm, right here on listener-sponsored WBAI.
So pitiful, the KKK still marching in their sheets, while Michael Brown and Freddie Gray get murdered in the streets. America, America, you just can't get it right. Why can't we see equality for black and brown and white? So pitiful, the toxic Trump, you lie with every word. You Russian whore, you stupid chump, your cabinet is absurd.